I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. fiction nonfiction podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that everything in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel, The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel, Love Marriage. And another forthcoming novel. Is this not the case? That's the rumor. And I know you're finishing up a novel too. Uh, So how do you relax while other people have your manuscript. I'm kind of living up in living in uh, hurry up and wait land at the moment. And so I've been killing time watching the Mandalorian. I would love to be in hurry up and wait land. I am not in hurry up and wait land. I also because I, I mean, you're on a sabbatical right now. That makes life easier, you know. Uh, uh, so but uh, I did watch the Mandalorian, you know, while grading papers and doing five other things. Uh, and it was good, I, you know, but that was also that that was before the whole Gina Carano deal. Yeah, Gina Carano, uh, a.k.a. Cara Dune, who, as Deadline reported, shared a TikTok post comparing the current divided political climate in the U.S. to Nazi Germany. Maybe not the best idea. I also heard she got fired. Um, And, well, you tell, you were going to talk about some other things that she did. Well, so anyway, so like I started the show at the beginning, just, you know, a couple days ago, and I'm watching these episodes in which Cara Dune, her character, plays a huge role. And I got to say, I feel some ick. You know, she had months of controversial social media activity, and I love the show so far, but I'm also 100% fine with her being canned. And other things she said, like mocking people, sharing their pronouns by changing her own pronouns to beep, bop, boop, a la R2-D2, uh, posting things Which supportive. Which is not cool. That's not no. cool. Uh, posting things supportive of QAnon, saying the election was a fraud. You know, I did I ever tell you this, Sugi, that I knew Dean Cain in college? Oh my God, I was such a fan of him until I discovered that he was horrendous. Yep, yepy <laughs> duppy. You were he was dating Dean Brooke Kane? Shields at Princeton <gasps> when I was there. Yeah, different guy now. Speaking of 
our subject for today. Him and Scott um, Bio break my heart, man. Problematic faves, which is what we're going to be talking about in the episode. Uh, anyway, Republicans have been calling out things like Gina Carano being fired, cancel culture and saying it's out of control. But some other people have been calling it consequences culture. I do think we should be talking about our problematic faves and how we can hold people accountable for their views. How does that how does life and art mix in this case? Well, we're going to talk about that today with two fantastic writers. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Matt Gallagher, who was on the very first episode of Fiction Nonfiction. Matt's the author of a recent and much-talked-about Intercept article about the book and movie Cherry. But first, we're thrilled to have Meredith Toulousen with us. Meredith is an award-winning journalist and author. They have written features, essays, and opinion pieces for publications including The New York Times, The Guardian, The Atlantic, Vice, Matter, Back Channel, The Nation, and The American Prospect. She has contributed to several books, including the New York Times bestselling Not That Bad, Dispatches from Rape Culture, edited by Roxane Gay. Her memoir, Fairest, is out now from Viking Penguin Random House. Meredith, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Meredith, I so appreciated reading Fairest, uh, which is about your experiences of gender and transitioning and also your alienation from your community in the Philippines as a result of your albinism we wanted to have you on to talk about problematic faves and writing in the face of transphobia. And then because I was obviously I was reading in the wake of the news about the shootings of Asian American women in Atlanta. And so that was very much on my mind as I was reading about your experience dressing as a woman for the first time. So I wonder if you could start us off with our conversation by reading that passage for us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this passage is from the, um, I read on an iPad because I have low vision um, and have a hard time um, reading my own book. But um, this is from the prologue of Ferris, and it describes um, the first time that I ever um, dress as a woman, um, somewhat unintentionally, which was for um, this um, ritual at Harvard on Halloween in Adam's house called Drag Night. After Drag Night, I went to a club called Man Ray in Central Square in Boston, and then um, I took the tea back to Harvard Square, um, and this is, this is a description of what happened. It was an unusually warm fall night, but the temperature had turned chilly over the last several hours, and I had to hug myself for warmth. I was about a block away from my dorm entrance when I became aware of a rumbling sound, unusually close to the sidewalk, then the honk of a horn. I kept walking, figuring the noise had nothing to do with me, but as I got closer to my house and the street got quieter, I began to hear yelling from several young men. Turn around, I heard one of the voices say. I paused and swiveled my head in their direction, where I saw figures so dimly lit that they looked like shadows, crawling by in a giant, early model American car. Hey, beautiful, someone from inside yelled. Come ride with us, another said. I smiled and shook my head as I rested a hand on my cheek. Not tonight, I replied, my voice suddenly breathy and high. I observed my thickened eyelashes bat before I turned around. It was only when I started walking again that I felt the sting of fear. I consciously pieced together what my instinct had already computed, that these young men had mistaken me for a woman, and I played my part to appease them. I also became aware that, that if one of these men had decided to get out of the car and examine me more closely, they would realize the mistake they'd made, and that this would make them angry, maybe angry enough to use their fists, and that it would be my body and not just my heels against the bricks. 
A deep part of me knew that running might incite them to chase me, and the safest choice was to walk at an even pace. It was a long half-block of ignoring their shouts before I got to my dorm entrance. Lucy, my friend, had lent me a black beaded clutch, and I fumbled for the class before I was able to fish out my keys, the ones I had a hard time getting in the keyhole because of my weak eyes. I had learned to unlock the door by feel rather than sight. I brushed the keyhole with a shaking finger, then tried to fit my key into the slot. Seconds where each gust of wind felt like a man's breath, every failed jiggle like a trap I couldn't get out of. I turned myself into a ghost like I did as a child, without a body and free of fear, when my mother beat me or left me locked in my room overnight. The voices of those men, so loud only a few seconds before, sounded as if they came from the other end of a long tunnel, slippery as I tried to crawl out. Finally, my key found the hole and I clicked the latch above the handle with my thumb, then opened the heavy door as fast as I could. I ran into a wall of fluorescent light and was suddenly afraid my broad shoulders would give me away. I hurried down the hallway and out of sight, started the climb up to my room as my heels made an almost clacking sound when they reverberated on the circular stairway. I only felt safe once I closed the door to my suite as physical sensation returned to my limbs and I realized how much my feet hurt. I went to my bedroom to take off my shoes relieved that neither of my two roommates were there to see me. I felt ashamed somehow to have attracted attention and then gotten so scared. I would turn the incident into a good story at brunch the next day, how some straight guys followed me home because they thought I was a hot girl. But that night, I just wanted to live with the fear and shame on my own, without the need to transform my experience into a witty anecdote. I sat on the bed and took off my heels, rubbed my feet as I reflected on how tired they were, how nervous I still was as my palm alighted on my chest and I felt my heartbeat slow to a normal pace. Yet as I recalled my fear, there also grew in me a surprising, pleasant sensation, and I smiled despite myself, fascinated at the sudden feeling that the experience had been worth it. Those men were convinced I was a woman, and I became curious about what they saw. I left my bedroom and crossed our empty common room to turn on the bathroom light and look at myself in the mirror. But my face was too hard, the light too harsh up close. So I took a step back and then another and then a few more until I could only see my face as a sketch whose details my imagination could fill. The colors were more pronounced than I was used to, my eyes and lips outlined in smoke and red. I noticed the pleasant semicircle of my dress's neckline against my chest and imagined graceful clavicles I couldn't see, though I did see that my neck was thin and long, something I'd never paid attention to before. All evening, people had told me I looked like a real girl, and those anonymous men had given me proof, but it was only then, in that bathroom mirror, that I perceived a glimmer of what they saw. From afar, I felt like a girl to myself even a beautiful girl. Meredith, thank you so much for that reading. Um, I had such a visceral embodied reaction to reading that because I I was mentioning to you before the interview, I've been to the club that you write about there and I've walked that walk back and I thought about violence against women and also how trans women of color have been especially vulnerable. You write about in Ferris the privilege of passing as white and also about the power of being seen as a woman in that moment. 
Can you talk a little bit about how we write about and imagine Asian women and the recent uptick in violence? Yeah, I've I've been thinking about this a lot, you know, just because I am in this unique position of being Asian, having grown up in the Philippines, you know, like being surrounded by Asian people um, in an Asian family, and yet at the same time being regularly perceived as white um, and being perceived as a particular kind of white woman, like a blonde white woman, blondness being also associated with a particular kind of privilege and innocence, right? Um, and I do think that one of the one of the things that that really you know that really stuck with me about um, the incidences of anti-Asian violence and just in general um, how the white gaze um, you know represents Asian people is that in comparison you know that you know people talk a lot about um, about. Asian women being over-sexualized, right, which is also the case for Black women, which is also the case for trans women. One of the things that, that throughout my life I've come to, you know, sort of like see actually and, and be really privy to is the shift in people's behaviors towards me when men's behaviors towards me, when they find out that I'm trans, when they find out that I'm Asian, that I can literally, you know, like see in their faces and their expressions, all of the, you know, kind of like symbolic weight of that, all of their associations around, you know, like trans women, you know, like automatically assumed to be more sexually adventurous, right? Or, you know, like Asian women being more exotic and, you know, like having, being privy to, you know, like sexual practices that are not, you know, kind of like known to white men. And so I think that, you know, like that's been something that's been really present for me in terms of seeing the ways in which the victims of the shooting were were literally erased, right? That there's a sort of assumption of passivity. There's this assumption of uh, especially working class Asian women who, you know, are potentially sex workers. You know, there's this sense in which, well, no, like these people aren't important. Their race isn't important. Their deaths aren't important. Let's focus on the fact that you know, like this white guy had a bad day and that he's a sex addict, right? Um, and I feel like, I feel like literature is an extension of that, right? Like the ways in which, um, you know, like the ways in which for, you know, like the, 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 for whatever reason, because, well, not for whatever reason, because it's such a, you know, like an important part of my life, you know, like Miss Saigon really, jumps out at me, you know, like as a representation and, you know, like Madame Butterfly, Puccini, M. Butterfly, um, the David Henry Huang play, all of the variations of that trope, right? You know, just because of the fact that that is like a really, um, that that is a representation of the sort of like whitened gaze, right? That, that the Asian woman is the sort of you know, is this sort of like passive creature that then, you know, that is then, you know, just like hoping to be chosen, like hoping for this sort of like love of this white man who would then, you know, like take care of all of her needs. And, you know, and in that particular play, the white man 
is presented in Miss Saigon, the white man is presented as innocent, right? Like as a victim of circumstance rather than, you know, rather than what is much more typical <laughs> of white men in that position, right? Which is that as a person who exoticizes Asian women and then, you know, and then just sort of like leaves them um, and, and doesn't, really ne- doesn't really necessarily care about the consequences. As you're talking, I was realizing, I don't know how this book didn't occur to me before, but I was thinking about Marguerite Duras' The Lover um, mm. as also just, I mean, like canonical exotification, if that's even a phrase that I want to invent. Um, right. You know, and I remember also seeing yesterday on Twitter, I mean, I'm trying to remember which opera this was, someone was advertising Madame Butterfly like yesterday. And I don't know, this seems like I felt a little bit like read the room. Um, like <laughs> right. maybe, maybe not the time. Um, right. You know, the Mikado and, you know, it's, it's, it's a really, and, and one of the things that's been really wonderful is, is the way in which there's been such a plethora of recent Asian American literature and Asian American fiction, you know, like we have Woman Warrior and we have, you know, Kathy Park Hong and we have, you know, like all of, we have Julia Tsuka, we have all of these ways in which we can, you know, like we have represented ourselves. And yet at the same time, you know, we also need to ask about, you know, kind of like larger mainstream representations and the fact that these tropes are still, you know, like are still so present in our culture, right? I noticed, you know, Aro Kwan, who's been on our show before, and she had a guy comment, you know, on on uh, on one of her tweets saying that this is not a racist incident; it's about sex trafficking, right? But the the point that you're making here is that these two things are intertwined in in a white guy's mind, right? Yeah, that, because that is how you become racist, right? Like you. Like that's how he's being racist in by connecting those two things, right? Right. You can't say that they're separated, right? And then and then to say that is is so is exactly on point of the problem here, right? Yeah, I mean, this is a very, this is a really typical experience for me, you know, like as both an Asian person and as a trans person, right? You know, like when cis women say, oh, like I'm, you know, like I'm not, you know, like I don't have a problem with you being trans, I have a problem with you being assertive, right? And it's, and, and I tell people, well, you know, like trans, trans women are not socialized in the same ways as cis women are, right? So is it possible that you're viewing my assertiveness through the lens of your knowledge about my trans identity, right? In the cultural climate that we're in, you know, it isn't necessarily, like not that many people will say, oh yeah, you know, like I'm racist against Asian people and these are my motives. Like you can always obscure your motivations using, you know, quote unquote behaviors, right? Like we've we've had this conversation around, you know, like, and, and continue to have these conversations about, you know, like black people and the use of the term urban, right. And the, you know, the use of coded words to describe people's behaviors. That guy is saying this is only just about sex trafficking because the women are Asian, right. That is part of the reason why he is saying that. Right. Right. And, and the parlor that he targeted was called like young Asians massage parlor, right. Um, it's, yeah, it's very frustrating because it's a, it's a really common way in which white people deflect charges of racism 
is by saying, is by saying, no, like I'm not racist. You know, like I am merely judging somebody through a racist trope, but I'm not judging them because they're Asian. I'm judging them because they do X and X and X and Y. Well said. That was what I was trying to get to. I like that, <laughs> I like that phrasing better. <laughs> All right. What, what about how we imagine and write about trans women? Uh, it seems to me that transphobia is becoming sort of a plank of the Republican Party in a certain way and has been like sort of, you know, it also is coming up in the culture. You know, there was the Harper's letter. Was that last summer? Sugi, was that, how long ago was the Harper's Time letter? Time is a soup. I, I have no idea. <laughs> I can't. It was during the pandemic at some point. Uh, was signed by J.K. Uh, Rowling, who had been criticized for transphobic statements, and the transgender writer Jennifer Finney Boylan, among others, took her signature off of it. So, and, and in the UK, you know, transphobia is a big part of mainstream feminism, right? So we're seeing, we've, there's the Marjorie Taylor Greene incident. I'm sure you saw her putting that sign up outside of her office. Um, what is it? There's only two genders. Is that what the sign said? Um, so what is happening in the culture when we're seeing this sort of be, this issue be weaponized as a political point? I do feel like after gay marriage, right, like after 2015, after, you know, like with the increasing acceptance of gay, lesbian, and bisexual people into, you know, like into, into the cultural norm or the cultural mainstream, you know, Republicans and fundamentalists are looking for new, new people to demonize, right? And there's this really convenient, um, you know, demographic of people to do that with, um, namely trans people for various reasons, you know, like one is that one is that they can invoke children, you know, whenever children are involved, all of these, you know, tropes start to come out in terms of like, in terms of trans people as predators, trans people as converters, et cetera, et cetera. The other is that, you know, is that there are factions within the feminist community who are also transphobic, J.K. Rowling being one of them. Um, and so I feel like, the, you know, like there is this really concerted effort, you know, to position trans people as the new, you know, like boogeyman in terms of, you know, like in terms of all of these cultural debates, right? And I think, and I think the way in which that converges with things like the Harper's Letter, things like, um, you know, things like um, writers, coming out with, you know, with transphobic views, J.K. Rowling, um, Chimamanda Adichie, um, for example, are two examples that I can think of, um, and Lamont. Writers in America are very, are really, really um, conscious of this idea of, you know, the freedom of the press, you know, the, that, you know, self-censorship is dangerous, you know, we as writers should be able to write what we want, you know, without, you know, we should have the freedom to express ourselves, which are all, you know, like really wonderful values, um, but we have to evaluate the context in which those values are being expressed, right? You know, so that you know, with the Harper's letter, when you're in the middle of this racial reckoning around George Floyd, is it really the right time, you know, to completely flatten all of these issues? You know, when you have demographics of people who are, who, who, 
a like literally self-censor all the time you know like I and I for instance was the first trans staff writer at BuzzFeed and I worked as the only trans person in an office of 500 people imagine how much (laughs) self-censorship that required you know like when you're like the only minority in a room all the time right I feel like white people are only are white cis people are being held to the same standard that minorities have always had to navigate um and they're finding it very difficult (laughs) it seems yeah I mean it's interesting to hear you talk about this and think about all of the ways that I mean I remember I was reading I think it was in New York it was a New York Times piece about how British feminism became anti-trans and it was sort of talking about right like there's all this rhetoric of um, kind of purity and you know like feminism is for women and then there's like right behind that of course is the notion that trans women are not women it's putting forward the idea that it that including trans women in feminism is somehow extra or that it is decreasing space for feminism, whereas it's actually expanding it. So it's totally backwards. And it was really surprising to me to realize the ways in which kind of like across the pond, this is like a very normal, like so-called progressive way to discuss it, which just doesn't make a lot of sense and also isn't backed up by like a lot of data. Like as you say, the boogeyman. See, I have a, I have trans students in class, um, and that's one of the reasons that we're doing this episode because this is we have some in, student interns who work on the show, and this was a, an idea that they that they brought forward to us, which I thought is a great idea, but um, you know they are really mad, and is it rolling or rowling? I never can remember which I'm supposed. I know it's something weird, and then I always say it wrong, but we'll just say it's one of those, and we don't care about her name anyway because she's being a pain in the ass, but. Um, she, you know, they are very angry, part because, you know, the Harry Potter series is an immensely read text, right? And so when I'm trying to look for examples of commonly read books to, to you know, like I, I use Star Wars, I use, you know, but, but J.K., the Harry Potter were books that I used, right, just as examples in class because I thought everyone will have read these. And now, you know, students have said, you know, we really don't want you to talk about that writer. And I'm like, that is fine with me. I don't have any investment in talking about Harry Potter. It wasn't my favorite book anyway. But, you know, it's interesting to me how how much her reputation has changed. I mean, were you a Harry Potter reader prior to, uh, you know, her political commentary? Thankfully, I dodged that bullet. You know, like I literally was just like, Phew, you know, like I I have not really invested I think I read maybe like the first couple of books, but I haven't, you know, like I don't have that, you know, kind of like investment of soul that, um, you know, that other people have. And I think, you know, like I think it was, it was actually Jenny Boylan on Twitter who was talking about the fact that, you know, that she has students and she has, you know, she has young, um, she knows young trans people, you know, like who grew up on these books and imagine, you know, like how, they're feeling now. But, you know, I have to say, I, you know, like, I, I love Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. And I recently learned that she, that she, um, you know, like, during the time that Caitlyn Jenner was transitioning, was really adamant that she wasn't going to gender Caitlyn Jenner she until, you know, until she had, um, you know, gender confirmation surgery, or, you know, like, you have, um, you know, like you have, I, I am deeply, deeply in love with Americana. Um, 
as a novel um, of migration um, and, you know, just, you know, just as a sort of like masterwork of fiction. And yet, you know, Chimamanda Adichie has expressed a lot, both agreement with J.K. Rowling and is really like, you know, just like talking about this whole kind of like idea that trans women are fundamentally different as women than cisgender women, right? Like, however you want to constitute, you know, like what it means to be, what it means to be a woman or like how you want to use these terms. And I think that's something that I've had to, you know, that I've had to wrestle with and we have to wrestle with that, you know, like that's something that, um, because otherwise, you know, like you just, you just stop having anything that you like or that, that you can appreciate. Right. Um, like I was reading Giovanni's room recently and it has like really phobic descriptions of, um, you know, like what would now be called trans women. Um, you know, like at the time they were probably classified as effeminate gay men. Um, and, and, you know, like to what degree, um, are those descriptions reflective of James Baldwin's own opinions, right? Yeah, these are really hard questions. And I think, um, you know, these are some of the reasons I was, we were interested in doing this episode. I mean, I remember recently, I mean, I love Adrienne Rich. And I, I actually had a quote from Adrienne Rich as the epigraph of my novel. And she was on the syllabus of a class I taught in the fall. And then I was told by someone I really respect um, that she had been supportive of transphobia and um, was a trans exclusionary radical feminist. And so I took her off the syllabus and was like, I'm going to go do a bunch of homework. And I took her out of the epigraph of the novel that I'm working on. And I was kind of like, this phrase has meant so much to me for so long. And also it definitely cannot be in front of the story that I'm about to tell. Um, like that's not going to fly. <laughs> See, this is, this is news to me, you know, another person that I have to, you know, that I have to sort of like think about, um, who I admire and it, and that's being a trans person. Honestly, you walk around enjoying all of these things. And then like all of a sudden there's just like a transphobic joke. There's all of a sudden, you know, like it, it's just like such a typical experience where, you know, like where you would just have this sort of like random moment of phobia in like whatever entertainment you happen um, to be enjoying. This is, this is also true, by the way, in terms of albino tropes, that it always happens that, like, whenever you have, like, you know, there's just, like, a bunch of representations um, in books and media where it's just, like, oh, like, you want to, like, highlight this character as particularly evil. Like, just make them albino. <laughs> right. <laughs> I had a student who wrote a brilliant uh, paper just last week that we uh, were workshops as an essay, but it was about um, her experiences watching and spining transphobia in movies, you know, and going back and thinking about there's a, like she described a scene in Ace Ventura Pet Detective that is completely insane. I, I, I had not seen that movie, so I, I did not. But I also remember The Crying Game, which was a huge movie a while ago. And she was talking about about, you know, sort of transphobic tropes that are in that in that film. And it was amazing to think about how present that is in in in, in popular culture of just a decade ago, you know, or, right. or more. The 40 year old version. um you know, like, I feel like part of the problem, right, is people want to be able to, 
you know, to express themselves in parody, but we live in a cultural context in which there is so much inequality and there is so much privilege that's entailed in being in a position of power that what minorities are saying is, you know, like my position is always like if we lived in a culture in which, you know, like I can make fun of white people as much as they can make fun of me um, and that, you know, like the cultural effects of those parodies would be the same and that, you know, like the viewership for those parodies would be the same then, you know, we wouldn't have a problem, right? You know, like yesterday I tweeted something like, don't you like stay up at night thinking about like cisgender kids staying cisgender and like not learning about, you know, like what it means to live as other genders and like propagating, you know, sort of like, you know, pro propagating toxic masculinity and patriarchy. Um, and there was actually like a person who took me seriously and was just like, well, no, like it's, you know, like it's important for people to be themselves, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I just feel like there's this way in which, you know, part of what it means to make fun of minorities relies on the fact that you have, you know, kind of like a mainstream majority agreeing with you, right? Like, because otherwise, you know, like otherwise that whatever you're saying would not land as a joke, right? Um, and I think that that's part of, you know, like the tension and the push and pull that we're experiencing in a lot of these cultural conversations. And then it's interesting, you get people talking about um, like, oh, I've expressed myself and now like the left is out to cancel me. And then you also get, right, like we're also trying to have conversations about um, like hashtag own voices or authenticity and a range of complex conversations about that. And people are also reflecting on how they're expressing themselves with regard to those things. And I feel like the way that the GOP has weaponized the term cancel culture has like gotten in the way of some of the complexity of the writerly conversations that we might be having about that. So I was thinking, I mean, I went and looked this up to be like, was I remembering this right? There was a YA novel called Blood Air, which is by um, an Asian author, um, Amelie Wenzhou. And she had written a novel that was a fantasy based in a fantasy world. And I should clarify also that I haven't read this. Um, I read the article about it and it's set in a fantasy world. And she had based it in part on things like um, sex trafficking and human trafficking and like was coming from this Asian context. And then sort of people who had read the novel sort of in beta or whatever in, in the YA world were sort of were criticizing it as insensitive towards slavery. And I think we're reading it maybe in a different context. And so she pulled it. She canceled it and um, and then sort of went back and looked at some of the criticism and decided that by and large, there were a lot of things that she didn't agree with. She thought that the book could still be published. And then she made some other changes with the aid of sensitivity readers. But it's like, there's a real difference, it seems to me, between criticizing something like that. And I don't know what the novel looked like right before and after. I'm not sure. And then criticizing someone like J.K. Rowling, who you can't actually cancel her. She's like made of money. <laughs> like, I looked it up, by the way. It's she. It's bowling, if you guys care. It sounds like bowling. Rolling. It's rolling. JK, yeah. JK rolling. made of money. Rolling. <laughs> <And> like, <Okay. laughs> I mean, and I, and I mean, I'm being glib. I, re I remember this, the story about, you know, her as a working class mother, et cetera. But like, I think also like you, if someone like that, people are talking about, oh, JK Rowling is going to be canceled. Like you can't cancel her. She's uncancelable. And that also, you know, like so many of these conservative commentators and people who have built their, you know, like their platforms around, you know, basically, 
you know, like anti-trans, whatever, their profiles are raised by claiming that they're being canceled, right? You know, like, so you have Jesse Singal reportedly being paid by Substack, you know, like an amount in the, you know, in the six figures in order to publish with them, et cetera, et cetera, right? And it is actually very difficult to cancel people. You know, like Louis C.K. is, you know, like is back doing shows. If you compare that to the fact, you know, like to the number of, you know, like careers that I've seen derailed or, you know, they completely, you know, like eradicated because of, you know, either white people or cis people or both, you know, um, supervisors, being terrible towards minorities, then, you know, then I feel like this entire concern around, you know, like, oh, I'm being canceled is just really misplaced. I mean, also, these are important conversations to have. I, I insist on their necessity, really. And so when they, I remember all the headlines about that the that Fox News was doing about Dr. Seuss. Well, I mean, he had anti-Asian stereotypes in, in those some of those books that were pulled. Why do you want to pull those books? Well, look what happened in Atlanta. You know, I mean, that, that you don't, do you want to contribute to that? Or do you think we should have a conversation about it? Of course we should have a conversation about it. And the idea that the, the right has somehow made this a, a talking point of negativity is wrong, in my view. Well, yeah. And I think what, one of the really funny things about the Harper's letter is that while it is simultaneously calling for like more nuance and discussion. It was simultaneously also like flattening out all of these discussions, you know, like it was saying, oh, like, you know, this person's, you know, this person's lecture was canceled. And, you know, like this person is like circulating a peer reviewed article and like they're being vilified. Oh, and like, let's compare that, you know, to like the you know, the debates around race surrounding George Floyd, right? There has to necessarily be room for, you know, like for all of these debates and all of these discussions. Um, and, and, and at the same time, you know, like people should be aware that there are consequences, you know, like when they perform certain actions. You can't expect to pen like an open letter you know, completely invalidating the identities of and, you know, kind of like fundamental feelings about the genders of an entire huge group of people and just say, oh, like I, you know, like I don't want people, you know, like not reading me anymore, right? Um, that That's just unreasonable. That's just consequence. You know, like I lived in a dictatorship. I lived in, you know, like I grew up in the Marcus regime, you know, like I'm aware of what it's like to like not have freedom of the press and freedom of expression. Like this is very different. The relative power of the people involved who are making these complaints is really different than, you know, this sort of totalitarian state power. And I think people need to be really cognizant of that. This has been a really fantastic conversation. I wish we could continue having it for hours. Um, I just want to quote a little bit of this Harper's letter that you're referring to, because there's so much code just packed into it. Um, it's like almost impressive. Editors are fired for running, co oh, more troubling still, 
Institutional leaders in a spirit of panicked damage control are delivering hasty and disproportionate punishments instead of considered reforms. Editors are fired for running controversial pieces. I think that's about James Bennett. Um, books are withdrawn for alleged inauthenticity. And, and Ian Bruma as well. Yes, and Ian Bruma as well. Um, books are withdrawn for alleged inauthenticity. Um, journalists are barred from writing on certain topics. Professors, professors are investigated for quoting works of literature in class. I can only imagine that this refers to professors who quote literature that has the N-word in it. A researcher is fired for circulating a peer-reviewed academic study, and the heads of organizations are ousted for what are sometimes just clumsy mistakes. And so, um, you know, further down here, it talks about we need to preserve the possibility of good faith disagreement without dire professional consequences. But I think, as you point out, so many minorities have been disagreeing with dire professional consequences for a very long time. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, th I think that you raise so many very valuable points about this. And it's been such a treat to have you with us. I really, really appreciate it. Um, and listeners, we just want to encourage you to pick up Meredith's terrific memoir, Fairest, out from Penguin Random House. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. Now we're thrilled to be joined by Matt Gallagher. Matt is the author of the novels Empire City and Youngblood, a finalist for the 2016 Dayton Literary Peace Prize. His work has appeared in Esquire, The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Paris Review, and Wired, among other places. He's also the author of the Iraq War memoir, Kaboom, and co-editor of, and contributor to, the short fiction collection Fire and Forget, Short Stories from the Long War. In January 2017, Senator Elizabeth Warren read Matt's Boston Globe op-ed, Trump Rejects the Muslims Who Helped Us, on the U.S. Senate floor. Welcome back to the show, Matt. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks so much. Uh, glad to be back with you all. You're like an OG, our very original episode. <laughs> the only person, That's right. one of the few people in the world who would say yes to us back in the day. Now, <laughs> now we're glad to have you back. Um, well, I'm, I'm glad to get the, the invite back now that you guys have made it big. Thanks for uh, thinking, thinking of the little guys still. We're all the same size. Um, all right, we're doing a show on problematic faves. I want to unpack this concept because in certain ways, you are a problematic writer, Matt, by which I mean you're writing from your original blog about the war in Iraq, which you wrote while in uniform, to your new novel, Empire City, was problematic for the Bush administration and remains problematic for the good old military-industrial complex. Uh, writers are supposed to be problematic in that way, I think. Uh, so what's the difference between good problematic and bad problematic? Ah, great question. Um, jumping right into the deep end. Uh, I think for me, uh, and you know, this is, this is just how I, I think about it. It's certainly not a universal answer. Um, I know when I want to sit down, uh, with a, with a book, I want, I want to feel challenged in some way. I don't want to feel exactly the same as I did before I enter that book. I want to wrestle with the ideas or, 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 or characters or, or themes or the notions, right? Um, uh, be changed a little bit maybe by the end of it, right? Uh, if, if I've sat down uh, for 300 pages only to have all my preconceived notions reinforced, why did, why did I spend all that time doing that? Um, and that's, uh, you know, as a writer, that's the kind of literature that I'm, I'm hoping uh, uh, to put down for, for my readers to experience. Uh, not to say that they're going to get uh, exactly what I intended out of it. They're going to have their own... Uh, own worldview and, and, and ideas, uh, but, you know, something that 
uh, transforms a little bit. I mean, that's the old dictum, speaking of a now problematic writer, and it's been problematic for a long time, Ezra Pound, you know, make it new, you know, is a real, is it a legitimate thing? I mean, we're all trying to do that, to push understanding in some way. I think so. Though, though bad problematic, um, uh, is, is it just reinforcing easy stereotypes, even Maybe. if it's sleek, sleekly packaged, right? Is, is it, is it uh, playing into popular wisdom uh, um, and, and, and calling itself literature? I think that can happen. Um, I think a uh, central part of this conversation is uh, this the weird overlapping that can happen between an author's biography and and their actual work, right? And, and uh, uh, I don't think uh, those things can be neatly untangled, nor should they be. Uh, on the other side of it, though, there is a danger of projecting that biography on uh, in, into their work uh, in a way that... that uh, uh, doesn't make sense to. I've been thinking a lot about, is it, and Sugi, I want to know what you think about this too. Like if something directly racist is in the work, but had been overlooked, like with the Dr. Seuss thing, it seems obvious to me like, okay, well that's in the work. We have to reevaluate that writer in some ways. And at minimum, I, I think it makes perfect sense to not publish those books anymore. And, but all, cause they're not saying they're going to not publish the rest of his work. I think his work needs to be understood in context with, okay, he did these things, but also he did this. But what if a writer is like known for having a lot of, you know, affairs that were consensual and, but does that affect the way that they write? Are you thinking of anyone in particular? I mean, I'm thinking of like basically every writer from the seventies and eighties <laughs> when I try to explain to my students, like, yeah, they're writing a lot about having affairs. It seemed like people did that a lot back then. And my students are all like, they're bad. This is bad. This character's bad. We can't, we can't discuss this, you know? And that, I find that interesting. Huh. I mean, I guess I require so much more particularity um, in how I think about that, because not all affairs are alike, I suppose, um, while there are power dynamics in all of them. But yeah, I would be curious to hear your students have that conversation. Um, well, like we were reading um, James Baldwin's book in another country, right? And the main character is... Uh, African-American guy who has an affair with a, a white woman and, and then also physically abuses her. But I think that Baldwin doesn't want you to totally separate from that character. You know, he wants you to take him seriously and think about his, you know, what, you know, systemic racism has done to him in the way that he's having this relationship. But my students really just wanted to cancel him. Like he was gone. He, could, he wasn't somebody that they wanted to morally consider. Now, this is different than thinking about the author's life, but I'm just... That's a comp. That's an example that I was thinking about recently. And maybe you were getting also a little bit to the question of what cancellation even means. Um, like, does cancel for your students mean don't teach it? Does it mean don't read it at all? Um, it seems to me like a lot of the people I know who, I don't know, like my own problematic faves, you know, I don't know, I read them perhaps, but I read them alone. <laughs> And I talk about them with other people for whom they are also problematic faves. And we're like, ah, problematic and also fave. Um, and I think for me, it's probably Roald Dahl. Um, you know, I'm a child of the Commonwealth, the former Commonwealth. And so there's like this set of colonial literature that so many of us know. So many people have like got Enid Blyton or something on their shelf. Um, or The Secret Garden. Or like all the Francis Hodgson Burnett is like, it's like laden with references to like, 
oh, and then he went to India and he got the yellow fever, but my ayah helped me. And you're like, oh God, like how many of these, how many of these depictions are there? Like the, the Pondicherry detour in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, where all of a sudden you're with an Indian prince for a chapter and he wants a chocolate palace built. And I know, Whitney, you didn't remember that until right now, nope. did you? <laughs> that was actually how I learned what Pondicherry was. Um, so there are all of these South Asian stereotypes all over a lot of the literature that I grew up with and really loved. I mean, Dahl was really form, uh, like really formative for me. Um, I can't chuck him. Um, I have to contend with the ways in which he was formative for me. Are there writers like that who were formative for you guys? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, when I was thinking, you know, and I, I think it's interesting, we're, we're kind of uh, uh, looking towards kind of old, like writers long dead uh, for this conversation, because I, I think, you know, we benefit t- uh, from the time, right? We, we can see uh, how their work has, has been changed, uh, uh, or the interpretations of their work have changed over the years. I mean, should we not read W.E.B. Uh, du Bois uh, just because he wrote a glowing uh, obituary of Stalin? I mean, just true, a truly ridiculous, glowing ob- obit for Stalin. Of course, of course, of course, we should still read him. Um, I didn't know that. That's a new one for me. God damn. Oh, it's check it out. It's it's insane. Um, uh, uh, 1953. Um, uh, no, uh, you know, does that impact uh, the transformative experience I, I had in college when I first read Black Reconstruction in America? It doesn't. Does it influence how I how I think about Du Bois and, and, and uh, as you know, one one, piece, uh, one major piece of the conversation in, in American letters. Uh, yeah, it, it does. It, it, it does. Uh, a problematic fave of, of, of personal to me uh, that I was thinking about um, is a, uh, Joseph Conrad, right? Uh, uh, Lord Jim uh, is a, a top drawer for me, uh, hugely influential in terms of, you know, it's a book about failure and living with failure. It's, it's, a, it's a book uh, that explores uh, uh, the chasms between moral courage and physical courage, uh, it's, it's a book, uh, that, that has inspired, you know, many a young person to, to go off and, and, and try to be something in the world. It's also a pretty racist book, uh, particularly in the second half when, when Jim gets to, to the, uh, to the island in the South Seas. Um, how do I perfectly reconcile that, uh, those things? I, I don't think I have. And I, I think, I think that's part of, part of this, right? It is, again, it's, it's, it's an and, it's not an either or, um, uh, Conrad should be read uh, and studied and critiqued. Um, and, you know, you've, you finish Conrad, you should pick up a Chibi's essay that uh, uh, that points out uh, all the many racist characters uh, uh, that his books are filled with. Um, it, it doesn't mean Conrad sh- should just go away. That, that I, I, don't, I don't find that to be a solution to anything. So, Matt, speaking of different kinds of problematic, you were getting at this a little bit before. Do you, how possible do you think it is to separate a writer or director or actor's work from their life? It seems like it's an obvious problem if it's clear that an artist's work itself contains prejudices that were overlooked or papered over. But what if their work is really exemplary or even groundbreaking, and then we discover that their personal life or political beliefs were a disaster? You know, we've got Ezra Pound's late career fascism, which is just the worst. But then we also have his poem, In a Station of the Metro. Uh, and is that... How does that show or is that inevitably polluted by those prejudices? And, and that poem is, you know, the apparition of these faces in a crowd petals on a wet black bow. Which is pretty good. I still like that. that poem. It's it's OK. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a rev- revolutionary poem, right? Uh, uh, I, I sat sat down with it um, uh, just about an hour ago uh, before our conversation and, and uh, 
wow, you know, to write to write something uh, that people are still reading a hundred years a uh, hundred years in the future, like is that not something we all aspire for? Um, that's greatness, right? That is that that is a poem of of, of greatness. Um, so when you sit down with the work, I, I I think it's something to aspire for to to cleave the work from the, from the person, uh, even even pound in this case, and try to immerse yourself in the poem. But then when you come back to the real world and, and not just because you're having a podcast about problematic favorites, but uh, uh, when you come back to the world and, and you're interacting with people and uh, uh, you want to recommend this poem to somebody or, or uh, a pound comes up uh, in conversation with students, um, uh, I think it's vital that uh, these, the, the, the caveats are included, right? Um, pound was jailed, I think, for over a decade after World War II uh, for, for collaborating with, with the fascist governments. And... Uh, uh, artists at the time, um, Ginsburg, Hemingway, uh, uh, among others, um, kind of really uh, pushed the powers that be to uh, to finally let him go because they felt that justice had been done. So uh, you know this this conversation about separating the art from the artist. I mean, this was happening for him at least within his lifetime. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I, I you know at the, at the risk of of restating my points uh, too many times, I, I, I think it's it's a matter of um, uh, this being part of the conversation, you know, the same the same way it'd be silly to read that poem uh, completely devoid of uh, of his life and, and politics. It would be silly to to study Ezra Pound's life and politics without including his poetry. <laughs> seems like a good point. I had to say there, it just sort of seems different on a case by case basis. Now we were talking about J.K. Rowling earlier, and the way that I read her work has definitely been infected. By the by, her personal politics, I, and I can't. I I really just I, another person who's like that is Woody Allen. Like Woody Allen was literally my favorite movie maker, and like I remember being young and somebody saying, "Yeah, you really got to see Manhattan. It's a great movie." And then that scene at the end of the movie when he's uh, listing the things that he loves, you know, about America, baseball, some you know, it's a very specific list of like things that are great about America that he loves, you know, that are aesthetic things that I love too, and. And then suddenly he realizes, oh, and I love this very young woman that I'm having an affair with, and he runs after her. You know, now that you know all those other things about his life, you know, it's if you can't, I can't watch that scene anymore. Basically, that one had to go. Fair, fair. I mean, he's an example of uh, the the art was the life, right? Like, yeah. like there, there's very little, there's very little layers between. Whitney has got this list of problematic faves here and one of them is bill cosby and i grew up um this was like appointment television for me that every thursday evening i basically had to watch, like it was like family required viewing and now um i actually wrote about this a little bit but i was trying to figure out a way to like save cosby for myself and there is sort of like all of these scenes where he's very paternalistic and sort of policing his daughters are now totally disgusting um but I did find that when I was thinking about acting, I did find it winning. Like it, you brought up acting before. I find it different than writing because right, this was also a collaborative project where all of these young women, many of whom were very powerful actresses. I mean, Keisha Knight Pullum is like a little kid is totally compelling, you know. So what does it mean to watch for the other performances to like go into that? And I don't know. Can I I was never a big Woody Allen fan, but if there were sort of another um, I feel like I've just admitted something very strange. Um, but like, you know, to, if you go back and you watch those movies and you're watching for other things, um, what can you get out of those things that you maybe didn't see before? Um, but then, yeah, also like like watching Cosby, it's impossible not to see sort of Lisa Bonet um, 
sort of like resisting something, um, even just in, in her performance, which is really interesting. And then she left the show kind of under complex circumstances or what at the time we, we thought were complex circumstances. And I think it was that she didn't, she didn't like him. Um, and so all of these things, there's also like the long durée of all of these conversations. Like how do you hold someone accountable when maybe you find something out like so late? I don't know. Like pound is gone. Um, <laughs> I think it's harder when the person is there, you know, um, <clears throat> like, it, you know, like it, I, I was affected by thinking about, um, you know, Alice Walker had that controversy where she recommended an, uh, an anti-Semitic author, David Icke, I think. I don't know how to say his name. It's I-C-K-E. It wasn't all that long ago. That was like 2018. You know, um, I'm not a not a Ted Nugent fan anymore either. God damn it. <laughs> I, I believe I believe uh, The Color Purple still has not been translated into Hebrew. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. So I, I, I think uh, th- there's kind of it's been a reef, a lot of instances kind of flaring up. Uh, over the last over the last few years, in terms of in, in terms of uh, Walker's um, stances towards uh, towards Israel and and um, uh, my and son was just reading Everyday Use for class, and I'm going over it with him. I'm like, God, I love this story, and I remember teaching it. I remember reading it for the first time. It's a really important story, and you know he was enjoying it. You know, and I'm like, ah, we're not going to get into this other thing. You know, I guess I would say that that story still felt good to me to, to teach and, and really good for my son to read. And I didn't, and I didn't think that this other controversy needed to be brought in at that moment. So is it something you sort of put a pin in and like five years, you're like, Hey buddy, you know, my son is Jewish as my wife is, but he says the most ridiculous things. And he's, cause he's a teenager. I don't know. You know, he says things that are wrong, you know? Well, so this is interesting because, like, right, they just appointed there was a there was a new editor for Teen Vogue who was an ex Axios reporter, um, Alexi Matt. Do you remember? Yeah, uh, McCammon is her last name. I, I just looked it up. Thank you. the The short version of the story is that she, as a college student, had posted a bunch of things on Twitter, which were, you know, anti Asian racism. Um, and I'm trying to remember the specifics of the other things, but this came up as she was appointed to be the new editor of Teen Vogue. Um, members of the staff expressed hesitation about it. She apologized. Um, and other people were sort of saying, how can you hold her responsible for things that she said when maybe when she was 20? Um, I, th- I think she was 18 or 19. Yeah. So, I mean, a teenager, right? And um, and she's black. And she apologized unreservedly. Um, and then she decided not to take the post um, sort of the way it was framed as mutual agreement with, with um, I guess it's a Condé Nast publication, um, with mutual agreement that they, they decided she would not be able to, to edit the magazine under this environment of these things resurfacing. And then again, there it is, like the ghost of your past is just on your shoulder, reminding you of the idiotic thing that you said, um, for which you should be accountable, but also how. That seemed rough. It, se- it seems like we, we're, we're kind of finding maybe some of our limits. And, 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 and to me, that this this one seems like it. Like, I, I think you're absolutely right that there should be accountability, right? Like, there should be some scrutiny to, uh, to make sure that this is not some kind of uh, systemic uh, uh, thought uh, or worldview that, that she's maintained. And, you know, she'll be in charge of people, right? She'll be in charge of careers. And, 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 and you don't want to see that um, uh, uh, still being pervasive in, 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 in how she operates and, and manages a, a magazine. On the other hand, uh, was this just kind of uh, a s- stupid thing that she put on the internet when she was uh, in her dorm room? Um, it, it, everything that I've read, at least so far, suggests that. And uh, I mean, if, if if this is if if this is the new future we're going to be in, um, 
she's certainly not going to be the first uh, first one to suffer some extreme um, consequences for frivolous things said uh, at, at, at 18 or 19. So Matt, one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you for this particular episode is that you recently wrote a very talked about article for The Intercept about Nico Walker and his novel Cherry, which is about to be released as a film starring Tom Holland. And your piece asks really specific and interesting questions about the ethics of that film. Um, I wonder if you could read a part of that article for us. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'll just I'll just read kind of the first section uh, to give listeners maybe a taste of, of what's to come. In the new film Cherry, the nameless protagonist, played by Tom Holland of Spider-Man fame, experiences an epiphany with a gun in his hand. It's pointed at the skull of a bank teller. A strange and messy journey has brought Holland's character to this day, to this moment. There's been war and drugs and other robberies, too. He seems to nod. Something is crystallized for him. He takes off the hat and scarf, serving as his makeshift disguise, and asks the teller to set off the bank alarm. They're similar in age, mid to late 20s. The teller is black. The robber is white. It's all right, he says, lowering the gun that, has, that had been directed at her head. I won't hurt you. Holland's character thanks the teller. He leaves the bank, hands over the cash to the dealer he's indebted to, and walks across a suburban street in slow motion to the heavy thrum of an orchestral score. He shoots his handgun into the air while people flee, then tosses the weapon into some nearby bushes, completing his transformation into victim. Yes, he is a victim, we are meant to gather, of society, of circumstance, of America. He sits on the sidewalk, removes his belt for a tie-off, and pulls out his rig. Police cars appear on the fuzzy horizon. This scene is drawn from a real-life event, though a lot was subverted. There was no final fix of heroin, for starters. There was no crowd-scattering gunshot, no final debt paid, no waiting around for the authorities. Instead, Nico Walker, an army veteran turned bank robber, and author of the autobiographical novel on which the film is based, got stuck in traffic. The police caught up to his getaway truck, and he crashed into an embankment next to a Burger King. The money he'd stolen was in a plastic bag in the passenger seat. There'd been no polite banter at the bank, no request for the teller to pull the alarm. Instead, in the real 2011 robbery, he'd said, Give it to me now, you know what this is, according to an affidavit from an FBI agent. It had just been a robbery, like the others Walker had gotten away with, until it wasn't. There is at least one truth in the fiction. A bank teller was on the other end of that gun. In the film, she's referred to as Vanessa. In real life, her name is Rosa Foster, and she was pregnant at the time of the robbery. Until I contacted her last month, she had no idea that her story was no longer her own. Her role must have complicated the process of turning the events at the bank into one fit for public consumption and profit. So over time and interpretations, she was pretty much removed from it. He is Spider-Man portraying him, Foster told me. Pardon me for saying this, but what the fuck? Erasure doesn't have to be an act. It could be a process, too. Thank you. That was really good. It's a very interesting piece, and I think really very fairly written piece. I um, thought you worked hard to to think about, you know, Nico Walker and, and not just attack him. I don't think you really do, actually. Um, but you you do bring up a lot of complicated ideas about the movie. Um and it's it's hard to do this between talking between movie and novel. I mean, I I wrote once about the I did not like the movie made from Billy Lynn's long halftime walk and wrote about that once, but I, I love the book, you know, and I just thought so there are differences. But uh, the most important is this fact, the idea of like that the movie portrays Walker as a victim. 
He's acting as a result of damage awarded to him, but at the same time, the real Nico Walker has said that he was messed up before, before he joined the military. And as you point out in the passage, this reading of his life erases the woman whom he held up who was black and pregnant. And you quote another Iraq war veteran, Brian Van Reet, in a post um, on the Cherry, uh, on Cherry, saying, asking this question, is there something especially romantic for Americans about bank robbers and broken veterans so long as they're clean cut and white? And I thought that was rather interesting. Thanks, Whit. I, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, being fair, uh, trying to be fair to to all all the people uh, involved in this story uh, was really important to me um, from from its inception. Um, I did not want to write a hit job. Uh, I, I probably could have. Uh, a lot of people had some really sharp opinions about this story turned novel, turned movie, um, uh, some of which uh, I ended up keeping out of the uh, of the final piece because I really thought in the end that kind of a multi-dimensional treatment was was what the subject warranted. And uh, so I, you know, went from there. Brian's essay is, is excellent um, and uh, uh, really kind of served as a genesis for, for uh, my piece, which is uh, 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 kind of a mixture of criticism and, 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 and journalism as well. Uh, it, 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 it's an interesting journey, and I, I don't want to I spent 7,000 words on it already, so I'll, I'll try to keep it brief here. Um, you know, it's, it, it is a, it's an autofictional novel. Um, how much uh, of it is fiction, uh, you know, really, really, I think only Walker knows. Um, there, there's a lot of, a lot of similarities. Um, uh, once you, you know, sit down with the court documents in particular and, 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 and glean through those sections. Uh, you know, in some ways it kind of makes sense uh, that a, uh, uh, you know, kind of a myopic, claustrophobic first-person narrator uh, would not be considering uh, the full, dimension, full dimensional huma humanity of, of potential victims uh, because they wouldn't be carrying out the robberies uh, 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 while high on drugs if, if they were doing that, right? Um, but, you know, that, that, that was kind of part of the process. Then how the book gets picked up and publicized and marketed um, uh, further erases um, uh, these, these real-life victims um, and their uh, quote-unquote fictionalized renditions. Um, then the movie really kind of pushed it, pushes it to its extreme limit, right? Where unlike the book, which is uh, kind of uh, like a Barry Hanna style, kind of just, you know, wallowing uh, uh, in, in the darkness and, and not, not asking for apology. And, and, and I do want to stress that, that I, uh, uh, Walker, Walker um, didn't, didn't do what the movie does there. Uh, but, but the movie wants us to see, and, and maybe it's because Holland's, uh, boyish good looks or whatever but uh, uh the movie works really hard to um portray holland as, as a victim uh, of it all and 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 it just it's it's too much it it it, 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 it it's kind of an absurdity um uh, uh given given everything and that, that's not to dismiss the, the real serious uh uh issues and uh experiences that walker and, and his character in the film go through um war in iraq uh both that both he and his character served as line unit medics and, you know, as very young men. Um, and, and I know myself uh, how horrific that can be, particularly for medics, right? Because uh, they, they, they're the ones um, uh, trying to hold life together amidst so much, so much death and ruin. Um, and then, you know, uh, uh, we're sent back uh, to, to American society and, and, and told good luck, good luck with re uh, go, go reintegrate, find a job. Uh, so I, I do, I, I, I have sympathy for that. Um, Walker and and his fictional uh, likenesses uh, get caught up 
in in the opioid crisis, kind of at the at, at the peak of it uh, in in two thousand nine, two thousand ten. You know, right there in in the, the post industrial rust belt, right? The uh, 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 book and the movie are set in Cleveland, uh, and you know, that that is not an experience uh, I have myself. But um, so I can't empathize with it, but I I I can and do sympathize with it. Um, that said. Uh, the bones of this story, the way it's been marketed as a book, as a film, you see it, you see it in the trailer, is him as a robber, right? Him as a him as a perpetrator, him him as a transgressor, and uh, uh, what is lost in that journey, in that uh, complete uh, uh, transformation of of what happened that day in in April two thousand eleven in a real bank with real people. That that's that's what I wanted my uh, story to focus on, uh, you know, not not so not to dwell on how much of this is fiction versus nonfiction. You mentioned on Twitter that after this article came out, another writer DM'd you and said you're not supposed to name names in the lit world, and that code of Omerta in the lit world I think is real, and and I wonder if it's the reason that so often we find frank criticisms of an author's politics or personal morality after they no longer occupy a position of power. You know, I'm thinking of giants like Updike, who people didn't want to attack while he was alive because he was so powerful and reviewed for The New Yorker. And now we see so many aspects of his work, you know, his writing about gay authors, for instance, rightly criticized. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, and I think, yeah, uh, uh, this, is, this, is, this is not new. It's, it's an old rule. Wait, wait, around, wait, wait around for the titans to die, then you can discuss them uh, forthrightly. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Updike I think is an excellent example. I'm, I'm thinking um, also of, of you know one of his last novels. Maybe his last novel was Terrorist, uh, 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 which was kind of a post 9/11 attempt at looking at uh, America through the through the lens of a, a young teenage Muslim American. Oh, I remember when that came out. I never read it's, that. It's not good. Okay. It's not good. Uh, <laughs> I'm it's really. I got a second mat on this one. <laughs> it's it's it's. I mean, it's he's tr- you know he's you can you can feel him trying. Um, uh, but it's, 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 it's a caricature and, and, you know, if somebody with my biography, uh, uh, wrote that, uh, we would be savaged and rightly so. Um, you know, he, uh, I think got the kid gloves treatment, um, partly because 2006, I, I think is when it came out, uh, was a bit of a different world, but, but also, uh, 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 to your point, he was John Updike, right? Um, so should there be more, um, Honesty uh, and forthrightness uh, in in the literary world, uh, I think so. Um, you know, if if you're not going to seek out something like truth, uh, uh, why bother writing? Um, am I holding my breath that this is going to suddenly become a, a big phenomenon in, in the in the clubby uh, uh, clubby world that we we exist in? I, I no, I don't think so. Uh, you know, people people have parties they want to go to. People have blurbs they need to get. Uh, uh, so you know, right or wrong or, or, or whatever, I think the, uh, the old ways of, of gossiping behind people's back uh, will, will endure and continue. Uh, that's not going away. Listeners, I, I got to say, I, I think you're really going to want to see this interview on the virtual book channel to catch all of the facial expressions going along with these things. Um, so I think, I think you're totally right. Um, your new novel, Empire City, posits a future world that involves a radical uprising by a conservative group that includes retired members of the military and self-styled patriots. What a, what a crazy idea. What are you doing, dude? Where did that come from? A scenario that seems a lot closer to journalism than fiction. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the premise of that and how you arrived at it and also read a section to us? 
Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I wrote Empire City uh, not as a, uh, a prediction. I was trying to trying to write a forewarning when I, I think I start the idea kind of came to me back in 2016, you know, because um, seeing uh, people that I, I care about uh, in uh, fellow veterans or, or uh, some active duty members still just kind of, you know, the there's a growing chasm, I think, uh, between uh, uh, that uh, that world and, and kind of wider America. Um, and, uh, you know, I spent much of the last decade, um, trying to understand both places, right? Cause I, I, I do firmly believe that it's, it's an unhealthy thing for a Republic to, to have its military feeling separate and apart from its citizenry. And, and that's where we're at. So I thought I, I came up with this really clever original idea to have uh, a group of, um, uh, insurrectionists who, who have, uh, who are just fed up, uh, with their fellow Americans and, and, and feel that they haven't gotten their due. Um, you know, and, and, and really, uh, that idea kind of came from, you know, the bonus army back in the twenties, um, was, was hugely influential in, in, in developing this. Uh, it is an alternate America. Uh, it did come out before January 6th. So it, uh, it's, uh, uh, well, it does have some similarities to, to what's transpired in our world. Um, it is, you know, it has its own peculiarities. Uh, it's set in kind of a very hyper imperial America that's out and open, uh, in a way that's kind of more based on like the high British model or ancient Rome. Um, and, uh, uh, we, uh, we've been sucked into a, another, a forever war, uh, in the Mediterranean, uh, in North Africa and, and, and Greece. So, uh, the short selection I'm going to read from now, uh, takes place at a, uh, a big fundraiser, uh, in, in the center of, uh, Manhattan, uh, where, uh, a, these group of veteran, uh, insurrectionists have taken a number of, uh, rich, powerful people hostage, um, for reasons that uh, that will be revealed. This thing on? Empire City Elite, your attention please. I'll say it only once. This is not a democracy. I am Veteran Zero. My men and I represent a coalition known as the Mayday Front. We are not criminals. We are not terrorists. We are patriots and humble war fighters. Here for our due. Holy shit! Tupac's here. My man. Love your show. Thug life in the AM. Gangster, gangster. Who's the gangster now, Pac? Give here that gold chain. For the cause. Where was I? Something, something. Honoring the social contract. Yes. The broken, the scarred, the fucking enlisted will be discarded no more. Invisible no more. We killed for you. We died for you. To care for him who shall have borne the battle. Abraham Lincoln said that. Smart man, that dead man. But even he could not foresee what you would do to his beloved republic. George fucking Clooney, you were a delight in imperial dreams. A little bit weepy, though. And the great Tet raid, so righteous. You even got that bitch Chuck Robb elected. My, my, those are sweet cufflinks. Burberry? Just touching them gets my dick hard. Appreciate the contribution. You people have disrespected my people for too long. Do you know how insane it is to raise money for individual warfighters while allowing the abuse of the warfighting class forevermore? Have even one of you assholes bothered to consider the warped looking glass logic of that? You're goddamn right that's a literary reference. I'm a man of letters. General Collins, a true honor. If I didn't think the political system was inherently corrupt and defective, you would have my vote. 
I heard you pegged the War Department Secretary to get your division more funding. Amazing. Tell me, where are you on jobs? Twelve million living veterans of the Mediterranean Wars. Yet the only steady work my men here can find is as jailers. Fucked up, right? Guarding other warfighters from proper society. General, please, give mine to the hinterlands. It's a real struggle out there. Rich people, listen up. We're not unreasonable. We fought for this country. We love this country. But you forgot about us. Can't be doing that. Not in the home of the brave. American service is a fine ideal. One I champion myself. And why we'll be ransoming you off in groups. To pay tribute to the service of those left behind by your plundering. That'll be it for now. Just sit tight. It'll all be over soon. The honor is ours. Thank you very much. Yeah, he's, you know, uh, fun character. He's, he's not got all his, uh, all his crayons in his box, but, uh, well, but plenty it, of righteous anger. What I was thinking about is interesting is, I mean, you get that sense of, from that particular passage, that sense of sort of preening overconfidence that I felt like for some of the people in the, 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 like the guy who had his feet up on Pelosi's desk, that kind of, right? That's exactly what I was thinking. But also, of. like, that argument is a hell of a lot more coherent than the ones who were raiding the Capitol on, uh, you know, saying that the election was stolen. That, of course, is a ridiculous nonsense. But the, the some of the points that that character is making are di- more difficult for me to dismiss. Oh, thank you for saying that. I, I, I hope it's uh, more coherent than uh, than the election deniers. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's a pretty political novel. And, and I, I found out pretty quickly, I was, you know, I wrote most of it during the Trump years, um, that uh, the politics in it had to be more coherent and smarter uh, than what we were experiencing in, in real life, because um, otherwise I was just kind of reacting to the headlines. And uh, so, you know, give, giving fullness and, and um, some some coherency to to even the politics of the villains uh, was was really important to me. That's so interesting. And then also the invocation of cultural figures, that sort of the building of the alternate reality. I mean, that's so that's fun. I, I had a great time giving Tupac his own morning show, uh, <laughs> for sure. Uh, yeah, which, you know, is, is not totally unfeasible. Completely plausible. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, you know, Snoop Dogg is is uh, is like a judge on uh, like American Idol now or uh, the American Idol spinoff show. So, uh, uh, you know, why not? Um, uh, yeah, the. The alternate aspects of it were were challenging, but uh, also the the most rewarding in the end. Well, I really enjoyed the book. Congratulations on it. And thank you so much for coming here to talk to us. Appreciate that. Great talking with you all and uh, uh, catch you the next time. Thank you so much, Matt. We encourage our listeners to check out Empire City and we'll provide a link to his article on Cherry, which is called Crime in Hollywood from The Intercept in our show notes. Take care. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Andrea Tudhope. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. Thanks to my excellent students in UMKC's podcasting practicum, they helped conceive this episode and produce it. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. And please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNFPod, on Twitter at FNFTalk, 
on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can also find video of this interview at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel. Happy reading, problematic or not. Thank you.